2: Good evening, children of the night, and welcome. Tonight we have a pair of tales for you, about a boy and his uncle who get a chance to know one another a little better during a family barbecue. Then, an elderly woman whose family was ravaged by the Spanish Civil War returns years later to put their remains at rest. But there are debts to be settled, and she discovers it's never too late for revenge. Our first story for the evening comes from Sasha Brown. Sasha Brown is a writer with work in McSweeney's, Prime Number, and Cosmas Infinities. He can be found on the web at SashaBrownWriter.com. Children of the Night, join me for Sasha Brown's I'm Gonna Show You Something Awful, a Tales to Terrify original.
3: I'm going to show you something awful, said Max. He was behind the garage with cousin Stevie. They could still hear the barbecue, but no one could see them. Stevie squinted up at him. What? You can't tell anyone, though, said Max, or I'll cut your ears off. Stevie backed up against the concrete wall. Really? Really. Are you ready? Maybe we should go back. Here we go. He reached over and took Stevie's hand. Stevie tried to pull away, but Max was nine and a lot stronger. He separated Stevie's pinky finger from the rest of them. It's a magic trick. I don't want, started Stevie, and Max bent his pinky all the way back until it touched his wrist. There were two distinct cracks, and Stevie shrieked in pain. Max held his pinky back there and leaned into him. Don't forget, okay? If you tell anyone, I'll cut your ears off. You know I will, right? He let Stevie run off around the corner of the garage. Uncle Tim was already there. Stevie fell, Max yelled, fixing his face into an alarmed look. Uncle Tim swept Stevie up and ran off, depositing him on the patio. Adults bustled around them. Beers were hastily set down. Burgers hissed on the grill, and the lobster pot rumbled over its jet burner, forgotten. Calls were made and Stevie fussed over. But things calmed down pretty quick. Accidents happened. It was just a finger. Grandma went to the hospital with Stevie. Everyone else went back to the party. Max was hunched in a lawn chair a little ways away from everyone, under the big oak tree, watching everything. He had his hands clasped around his ankles and his face framed between his knees. He looked worried. Uncle Tim saw him and came over his big soft frame smushing into a lawn chair next to him. He had to adjust his fanny pack around the front so he could fit in. Hey, buddy, said Uncle Tim. Max sniffled. Is he going to be okay? He'll be fine. Kids are so resilient. I'm glad. It looked really scary. I bet it did. Uncle Tim patted Max on the knee, but after a few pats, he just left it there. Max wasn't sure what to do. So he stayed motionless too. Both of them were silent, looking out at the party. Uncle Tim's hand felt heavy and moist on Max's knee. No one was paying attention to the two of them, off under the tree. After a while, Uncle Tim said, Did it feel good to do it? Max didn't even twitch. I didn't do it, Uncle Tim. Stevie fell. Uncle Tim gave a wry little smile. I saw Stevie's eyes when he looked back at you, Max. He sure was scared of you. Max hunched his shoulders and looked down at the grass, away from Uncle Tim. It's okay, said Uncle Tim. Sometimes we just want to feel powerful, don't we? It was an accident, mumbled Max, twitching. Uncle Tim's thumb was rubbing in little circles on his knee. It made his kneecap move a little bit. Uncle Tim shrugged. You don't have to say it. It's okay to have secrets. Do you want to hear a secret of mine? Max leaned away from him as much as he could in the lawn chair. It feels good to me too, said Uncle Tim, when I hurt people. Max's eyes widened for only a moment. He kept looking down. Oh, yeah, said Uncle Tim. I have dug some holes in my life, boy howdy. Have you had to dig holes yet? Max paused and then gave an almost imperceptible shake of his head. You will, said Uncle Tim. I've known you since you were chasing the cat on your hands and knees. You'll be digging holes sooner or later. You're one of the mean ones, Max. Uncle Tim was still rubbing Max's knee, making his kneecap wobble up and down. You surprised? Never would have thought good old Uncle Tim had a secret in him, would you? Max gave the barest little shrug of his skinny shoulders. That's how you do it, Max, said Uncle Tim. You can't be a creepy little kid like... He his free hand lazily at Max. They'll come to you first. You have to be the last kid they come to. You understand? Max shrugged again. You get it. Do your parents know? Max shook his head. No, I wouldn't think so, said Uncle Tim. They're both fucking idiots. Max let out a quick snort laugh at that. It's good that they don't know, said Uncle Tim. Keep it that way. Anyone who finds out is a risk. You never know when they're going to get ideas. Start feeling noble. Then you have something new to deal with. They were quiet for a while more. Then Uncle Tim said, Nice to be with someone who sees you, isn't it? I guess, said Max. You have to be careful though. People like us, the mean ones, we recognize each other. But that doesn't mean we're always on the same team. You get me? Max didn't say anything to that. Take you and me, for example, said Uncle Tim. We're family, right? You might think that means we're on the same team, but we're not. He still had a hand on Max's knee, and now the other reached over. Max didn't even have time to move. Something glinted in Uncle Tim's hand, his wrist flicked, and a wound appeared on Max's calf. Not a big one, just a little gouge of his flesh. Max started to cringe away, but Uncle Tim hissed. Don't move. Just sit there. Just take it. Don't even twitch. Max sat there. Blood seeped down his calf, into his sock. Look at me, said Uncle Tim. Max looked at him. Uncle Tim raised his hand to his mouth and slipped the little chunk of Max's flesh into it. He stared into Max's eyes as he chewed on it. He kept his mouth open. Max could see the meat from his calf squishing between Uncle Tim's teeth. A little blood oozed out, staining his teeth, running down his gums. He chewed it a few more times and then swallowed. That's how I do it, he said brightly. I like to eat it. Do you like that? Max shook his head. Uncle Tim shrugged. "Eh, Too bad. He fished around his fanny pack and brought something out. Max flinched, but it was only a band-aid. A big butterfly bandage. You gotta stop scratching at your bug bites, said Uncle Tim. He unwrapped it and carefully smoothed it over the divot he'd made in Max's calf. That one's gonna leave a scar. If you fuck with my kid again, I'll eat the rest of you. I'll make you watch me do it. I'll carve you away, slice by slice. By the time I let you die, eyes will be all that's left of you. You're a mean one, Max. Max. But I'm meaner, you understand. Max nodded. So glad we had this talk, chirped Uncle Tim. He stood up and gave a big stretch, and then clapped his hands. And don't worry about Stevie; he'll be fine. Shall we rejoin the party? Max nodded. They stood up together and started walking up to the patio. It was still a hectic scene up there. Grandpa had turned off the gas grill. He was removing burgers. Aunt Sadie was on the phone, checking in with Grandma at the hospital. The lobster pot was still going, bright red lobsters slowly somersaulting in the water. Is it hard, Uncle Tim? Max asked suddenly. Uncle Tim slowed, his face showing genuine pleasure, looking down at him. He gave an avuncular smile. They were still a few feet away from the patio. Which part? he asked. Just having a family when you're one of the mean ones. You have to worry about little Stevie and Aunt Sadie, too. Uncle Tim's smile vanished. I can take care of them. I don't think I care about anyone at all, said Max. I think I have less to worry about. They stepped onto the busy patio. When Aunt Sadie saw him, she froze, a sickening smile wavering on her face. But Max ran towards her, sniffling and looking sad. I'm so sorry, Aunt Sadie, he cried out. Uncle Tim jerked instinctively towards him as though to stop him and Max stumbled into the lobster pot knocking it off the jet burner and onto Aunt Sadie. Boiling water splashed all over her. A cloud of hissing steam went up and she shrieked and fell. Most of it hit her from the waist down, turning her pants dark between her legs, soaking them with scalding water. Scarlet lobsters spilled dead-eyed into her lap and cracked onto the patio around her. She was scrabbling at her pants, gibbering Uncle Tim tried to yank her jeans down, but they were tight and wet, and it took a minute. By that time, she was badly burned. Her thighs were a bright, panicked red. Help! he shouted. Someone call an ambulance! Max knelt down as well. He leaned into Uncle Tim's ear. You're right, Uncle Tim, he whispered. It feels good.
2: That was Sasha Brown's I'm Gonna Show You Something Awful, as read by Jesse Holt. Little is known about Jesse Holt, though rumors have circulated that he was found frozen within a 20,000-year-old ice formation during an Arctic oil drilling expedition. This is purely speculation, of course, as the official records state that the entire staff of the camp perished in what was described at the time as the most savage polar bear attack in history judging by the mutilated and partially consumed corpses that littered the snow. Strangely, though, no bear tracks were found. Today, Jesse is a voice actor and tour guide with a passion for travel, and he's always happy to meet new victims, uh, friends. You can find him on Twitter at Voice or on his website at jessieholtvoice.com. Thank you, Jesse. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com/slash people today. Our second tale tonight comes from J.V. Gotch. JV Gotch is a Spanish classicist and writer, currently working as a Latin teacher. Writing in English and Spanish. Her work has been featured in anthologies like Scott J. Moses' What One Wouldn't Do and Chelsea Pumpkin's Ah, That's What I Call Horror. Her first novel, Epiphany, will be released by Off-Limits Press sometime in December 2023. Obsessed with sudden death, ghosts, and female villains, she always writes with a cat or two in her lap. Listen with me children of the night to jv Gotch's i carmella first published in antifa splatterpunk december 2021
4: And when people ask, you just say a hog bit your finger, said mother, while burying my little finger she had just cut off. Grandma had woken me up in the middle of the night, taking me out of bed to hide with her inside the carbonera. We sat in the small, dark room on top of a warm pile of coal, surrounded by the smell of earth and dampness. She held me tight, an eight-year-old frightened kid. The war had broken out two years before, in 1936, but to me, that word hardly meant anything. War implied that mother had to work because father and my brother were gone, and also that some days there was no school. War was the adult's excuse for giving us less food. It had never involved grave danger. Fascists were no more real than the Nuberu and his storms, or the golden-haired sanas of the lake, and rojo was nothing more than the color of blood. But I would discover it was also a death sentence in the new world I was about to enter. Grandma covered my ears and pressed me against her chest. I couldn't open my eyes. I knew she was crying because her tears soaked my hair. My world curled around her muffled sighs, making me feel safe when I felt a strong tug dragging me out of our hiding place. Grandma protested, but Mother grabbed my arm, scratching my skin with her calluses. Her nails were blackened. She was dirty. A foul smell covered her skin. When I turned to glance at her, my heart stopped. Her head had been shaved carelessly. Dried bloodstains and scabs proved the cruelty of the scissors. There was nothing left of the black hair I loved combing. Her clothes were ruined, her stockings full of holes, and her thighs scratched. I shut up and let her lead me away. She never told me what had happened that morning. Only after her death did I muster the courage to look in history books for the accounts of other women, all of them so similar that there was no doubt of the humiliations she endured. Whatever she suffered, it turned her into the woman who never spoke of the war again, who never read again, who never uttered the word freedom again, not even after the death of the dictator. The sun was rising when we left the house. Watch where we are going, Carmela, she repeated over and over again without looking at me. She walked like an automaton, her voice as rough as her hands. This was to be her last act of rebellion planting a seed that would take eighty years to sprout. We crossed the estates of some relatives, passed the cemetery wall, walked a few meters around it before she stopped. The white wall was dotted with red stains and holes. The earth under our feet was freshly turned. Not a breath of air was flowing. Time was suspended. Birds dared not sing. Horror was falling on that August morning, turning the sky to lead and blackening the field. Mother knelt on the cursed earth, gripping my wrist tightly. It hurt. She forced me to kneel beside her. Your father and brother are buried beneath us, she said, without sugarcoating it, without preparing me for the blow. I wanted to free myself from her grip and run away. My heart thumping in my chest, tears running down my throat. I wanted to scream, but I could not. They were shot by the fascist army, they and their comrades, your teacher and cousin Jose. They are all here together, nameless, without a tombstone, for they wish us to forget them but I am going to make sure at least you don't forget. That this morning and this sight are engraved on your memory. Mother, I... no, I tried to protest. Suddenly war was a knife piercing my chest. Listen, Nina, many years will have to pass before their names can be said out loud again. Today you may remember, and tomorrow. But some day you will grow up... You will have a family, problems of your own, and the fog of everyday life will engulf this day until it will be impossible for you to pinpoint the grave. I promise I won't forget, Mother, I cried. At no time did I see the pruning shears. She must have kept them hidden in her apron. Mother was much stronger than I was. She had no trouble holding my open hand against the ground. "'She caught the little finger of my right hand "'between the cold, metallic blades and squeezed, hard. "'She didn't hesitate for a second. "'After so many years helping father with the slaughter, "'she knew well how to make the cut as clean as possible. "'My nerves took a few seconds to process it. "'My blood was already running over the dirt of the mass grave "'when I felt the lightning flash through my body.' And before I could scream, Mother let go of the scissors and clamped her dirty hand over my mouth so tightly I couldn't breathe. Feel the pain so you will never forget it. Years of darkness approach, but when the sun rises again, you will be able to walk here and point. You will say, here are the honest, brave men who were killed for their beliefs, for us for the future. Then you'll get your finger back and you can bury it with them. I hope on that day you will stop hating me for what I have just done. Don't let history erase their names. I baptized the grave with my tears and blood as Mother buried my finger under the same earth that covered the bodies of the seven shot anarchists, among whom were my father and brother. Mother's laughter and her sweetness. Only now, eighty years later, walking without a doubt to the exact spot as if it were yesterday, I see that she did the best that she knew. Today is the day I will stop hating you, Mother. Today is the day those bones will be returned to their families and laid to rest with due respect. My granddaughter, Louisa has driven me back to my hometown. Neither she nor my husband, may he rest in peace, nor any of my children ever knew the story of the pruning shears. My mother and I never hugged each other. Whenever someone asked me about my missing finger, I would tell them the story of the hog. No one asked any further. I have not told it either to the young people who are going to open the mass grave despite the mayor's attempts to prevent it. So many years after that night in 1938, so many years after the death of the dictator, they have won the town back, this time with votes. Or so they say. He said we wanted to reopen old wounds. When wounds don't close properly, they fester. The volunteers have taken my word for it because some documents and testimonies point to the area around the cemetery as a possible site of the firing squad. If they find some small bones they cannot identify, I will tell them the story. Here, Doña Carmela, asks one of the men with a worn black T-shirt, a gray beard, and a black bandana. He has a device with which he is going to find out if there are indeed bones down there. They explain to me how it works, but I have long since stopped paying attention to the lengthy explanations of the world's new technologies. Does it do that? It's perfect. I trust it. I don't need to know more. They're all right there, son, I reply, and for a second the voice I hear coming from my lips— is the tinny voice of an eight-year-old girl. Luisa takes me back home while they start working. I can no longer stand the heat so well, and we can wait for the news in the orchard. They arrive as the sun begins to set. It looks like you were right. We'll start digging tomorrow. Soon you will have your father and brother back, Doña Carmela. And thanks to you, everyone will have a tombstone. The mayor can't stop it, said the man with the gray beard. Oh, that one. He doesn't want his surname stained. He knows damn well who held the rifles. Thank you, son. My eyes fill with tears of gratitude as I think of mother. A feeling of forgiveness showers me like a summer storm. I can't sleep. It seems to be a side effect of aging. The doctors prescribe me pills, but I don't take them. After all, at almost 90 years old, I don't have that much time left, and there is still a lot of life I want to experience. If I have two or three years left, even ten to come, I don't want to spend half of them tucked up in bed sleeping. At least as long as I'm still feeling well. It's true, my body has rebelled against me. I get tired earlier walking is hard. I can't see without my glasses, but up here everything works just fine. The early hours of the morning when everyone is fast asleep are the best for reading. No one bothers me and I can immerse myself completely in the world the author presents. But today I don't pick up my book when I wake up at four in the morning. I look out the window at the full moon. The cool wind blows in as if it were autumn. Yesterday they told us they had found them, that we could see them today. I don't want to wait. I've been waiting 80 years, more than 29,000 days. I get dressed, trying not to wake my granddaughter. I hear her snoring across the hall. She's still young and doesn't need to scratch hours off her life. I walk barefoot. I grab the folding chair I had pulled out for this moment. I sit on it to put on my shoes, and I start, at my own pace, on the path to the cemetery with the folding chair under my arm and some casa in case I get hungry. I shouldn't eat them because of my sugar problem, but a day is a day. The village sleeps. Crickets fill the night with music. A soft breeze caresses me. The smell of summer and the thought of finally fulfilling the mission Mother gave me make me smile when whispers and footsteps break the night's calm. They come from the cemetery. Boy, do these volunteers start digging early. As I get closer, from the tone of the voices, I realize they are not the diggers. They are nervous, in a hurry. Suddenly, two boys run past me. I can't get a good look at their faces. Another group of three starts running towards the village, but they see me and change their route. They drop buckets that sound like thunder and make me shudder. One last boy runs out from behind the cemetery wall, so fast he doesn't see me. When he looks up and meets my gaze, He is paralyzed. I would recognize the features of that face anywhere. They are as etched on my mind as the place where my mother cut my finger. He is the mayor's youngest son. He recognizes me, too. I don't say anything. He's young, nervous. He has to do something to prove he's not scared shitless because an old lady caught him doing whatever it is he's doing. Roja! he yells at me and spits on the ground before changing direction and running off. I let out a sad laugh. What an offense to call me a communist, or a communist daughter as his family used to do. No use in explaining that my father was with the CNT, the anarchists, not the Communist Party. We are all the same to them. I keep walking, but now I'm stuck with a horrible doubt. What were they doing out here in the middle of the night? This boy's great-grandfather took the lives of all the men in that grave, and his father tried to keep the bodies from being recovered. What's the new blood doing hanging around the grave now? I manage not to scream as I turn the corner. My blood turns thick black and sour like vinegar. The pit is open. The diggers had set up tents to protect the excavation, tables on which to place the remains, arrange them, and then deliver them to their families. Now everything is smashed. The table's broken, the tent in tatters. Red paint falls like bloodstains from the wall of the cemetery. They tried to draw swastikas, but have not succeeded. They don't look right. They have also written praises to the dictator. Viva Franco! I peek into the grave with my heart in my mouth, beating and spreading vinegar all over my body. The finger my mother cut off hurts. Pain goes up my elbow and shoulder and down my spine. The bones of the men buried there are half sticking out of the ground, one on top of the other, covered in red paint. The whole pit, in the light of the full moon, glows with the color of the paint. Roja. As it must have glowed with blood eighty years ago. It was not enough to take their lives, to take their businesses, their land, their freedom they did not have enough with forty years of rage and so many years of silence that now they send their puppies to take away their dignity as well. I do not cry. I have no more tears left because I only have room for hatred. The wound on my finger opens up. The skin cracks. The flesh opens and gives way to thick blood. It begins to trickle down my hand, and I raise it over the pit, letting it fall on the bones. I clench my fist. My blood mingles with the paint. The thirsty earth absorbs it. Father, brother, cousin, honorable men, my blood was spilt here, too. I had no strength then to avenge you, nor do I have it now. But if hatred would do, my blood would suffice to raise hell this dawn. A rumbling grows beneath my feet. The earth moves with a rhythm of its own. Regular. A heartbeat. I look back inside the pit. The crimson-stained ribs move. They open and close in sync with the movement of the earth. Breathe in. Exhale. Suddenly, with a thud, the clavicles rise. The earth shakes and several skulls come to light. I have to sit in the folding chair. I squeeze my open wound with my shirt. The men climb out of the mass grave, their hands clutching at the earth, at the overhanging tree roots, Some shreds of clothing still cover their fleshless bones, red and black. Three skeletons have already climbed out when a fourth stands beside me. It watches me, old and helpless, my white shirt stained with blood, and though its eye sockets are empty, I know it is looking at me. Then it crouches down, kneels beside me, and holds out its outstretched hand, offering three tiny little bones. White. Shiny. As if brand new. My finger. Father, I murmur, staring at the holes left in his rib by two bullets. I bite my lips and take the bones. As the rest of the men leave the mass grave, The contact with those tiny bones makes my body feel lighter, my joints springy, my arms strong. I feel whole, inflamed with the same life force that has filled the bones of the dead anarchists. I grab my father's hand and stand up. The other six are taking the picks, shovels, hammers, and hoes that the diggers have left for their work. I follow them. The same hatred that has awakened them has given me back the strength of youth. Even though my hands are still wrinkled and stained, we walk toward the village under the light of the full moon, but protected by the night. The village is still asleep. When we reach the first houses, the skeletons take different streets. The decorations for the quince de agosto celebrations are up. The flowers on the windows, the big pole in the middle of the town hall square covered in garlands. The remains of my father and brother continue on their way to the mayor's house. I see my reflection in the glass of the butcher's shop. My back straight again, firm, "'My legs with varicose veins hold me tight. "'My white hair in a bun shines in the moonlight. "'At my back, two skeletons holding spikes. "'We reach the windows of the house. "'Glass shatters on the floor. "'We enter the house, and the coward youngest son is in the kitchen. "'Back from his misdeed, he was warming a glass of milk.' after desecrating a mass grave, after trying to insult me. It's nothing to him because, in his mind, he's taken away our humanity. What wasn't going to cost him his sleep is now going to cost him his life. The first puncturing blow knocks the cup out of his red, paint-stained hands. The second one hits him squarely on his Spanish flag shirt right on his chest. He wants to scream, but the blow has left him breathless. He coughs blood. He falls to his knees, looking at me, pleading, terrified. My father's skeleton has gone upstairs. I hear a woman screaming. Someone tries to flee down the stairs holding a rifle. It is the eldest son, who is now a guardia civil in the village. He's been accused of misconduct with the female detainees. Apples never fall far from the tree in this small town of fascists and cowards. He sees his brother on the floor, a skeleton standing over him in the kitchen of his house. He stands mute and paralyzed. The hand holding the gun trembles, and before he has time to recover and shoot... I grab a butcher's knife from the counter and plunge it into his throat. He looks at me, his eyes wide open. I guess he never imagined a 90-year-old woman was going to slice his throat. As I bury the knife deeper, the blood spatters on me. I push a little harder, slowly feeling the pressure of flesh, muscles, Tendons, I keep sinking the knife in until I notice it has gone through to the other side. And then, with one sharp movement, I pull it to the left, tearing the flesh and covering myself with blood. It tastes metallic in my mouth. Down the stairs, my father's skeleton drags the half dead mayor. He had not yet been born at the time of the firing squad. I served at his house as a maid when my mother could no longer feed me. One could fall into the error of thinking he was innocent. He was not when he laughed at me because of my missing finger, nor when he told me that my father and brother were rotting for being traitors, and that he wished they had killed me and my mother too, for the communist seeds have to be taken out like bad weeds. He was not innocent when he threw his middle son out of the house after he came out. Nor is he when he beats his wife. A perfect fascist bastard. My brother drags the youngest son, the apprentice who spilled the paint on the pit. Eighty years have passed, and tonight all debts are collected at once. I grab the dead Guardia Civil by the hair and carry him out myself. The other skeletons approach the square, dragging half-alive, mutilated, or dead, sons and grandsons of those who killed them. I am surprised the howling of the dying has not awakened the whole town. Time has stopped, and we have slipped into an anomaly. Only hell has offered us a chance for justice, and we have taken it. They tie the dead and dying bodies to the quince de agosto pole decorations. They hang upside down by the ankles. I slice the bellies of those who are still alive with the knife I used to open the Guardia Civil's neck. We grant them a slow, painful death. Their guts fall at my feet. They howl. They try to fight, but they bleed to death. Silence falls. Eight bodies are hanging in the town square. Trust me, I knew them all, and the world is a better place without each and every one of them. The skeletons, stained with paint and blood, make their way back to the cemetery. They walk with a firm step. This is the same route they must have taken that night, afraid, tired of fighting, worried for their families. Sure, they did right, but defeated none the less. The same as I did at dawn with my mother, who carried a pair of pruning shears in her apron. One by one, they return to the pit, from where they will be recovered tomorrow. They will be handed over to their relatives. STAINED WITH RED PAINT AND BLOOD, BUT FINALLY IN PEACE. THE LAST TWO TO LEAVE ARE MY BROTHER AND MY FATHER. I SQUEEZE THE BONES IN MY OLDER BROTHER'S HAND AS A SIGN OF farewell. MY FATHER HUGS ME, AND I FEEL HIS WARMTH, EVEN THOUGH HE HAS NO FLESH. THEY RETURN TO THE MASS GRAVE, BUT NOT TO OBLIVION. I PEER OVER THE EDGE OF THE PIT. And there they lie motionless. I reach into my pocket and pull out three little bones. I throw them inside where they will be found tomorrow. And I will finally tell my granddaughter the truth of what happened that morning. When the bones touch the soil, time starts up again. My clothes are not covered in blood anymore, protecting me from guilt. Gravity falls on me like a slab. My body is heavy, but not my soul. I have to sit in the chair I had brought to wait. My chest shrinks. It's hard to breathe. The light is turning blue. Soon the corpses in the square will be discovered. I calm down and remember the casadillas I have in my bag. As I eat them, I hear distant screams. People have woken up and found the settled accounts hanging upside down with their guts spilled. The sun hits my face, and I begin to sing the lullaby my grandmother sang to me when mother couldn't hear her. Pero igual que combatimos, rúmbala, rúmbala, rúmbala. Pero igual que combatimos, rúmbala, rúmbala, rúmbala. Deberemos combatir, ay, Carmela, ay, Carmela. Deberemos combatir, ay, Carmela, ay, Carmela. But just as we have fought, we shall fight again, ay, Carmela.
2: That was J.V. Gotch's I, Carmela, as read by Maureen McLean. Maureen McLean is an Austin musician plucking the bass with acoustic bands, the Therapy Sisters, and a proper cup of coffee. She earns her keep in the courtroom interpreting real-life terrifying tales from Spanish to English. Thank you, Maureen. Well, children of the night, the hour is late and we've run out of tales to tell. For now. Tales to Terrify is made possible by the tremendous generosity of our supporters on Patreon and PayPal. Incredible fans like Russell Baxter, Paul Belcher, Amanda Carrillo, Amanda Gottfried, and Orion D. Hegra, whose generous support helps keep the lights on and flickering ominously. Not a supporter already? Head over to patreon.com slash tales to terrify, where you'll find all kinds of perks, like ad-free episodes, bonus content, and one-of-a-kind collectibles and merch packs. Every dollar goes back into this show to make it as horrific as possible, and we appreciate it so much. Want another way to support the show? That doesn't cost a cent? Head over to Podchaser, Spotify, or Apple Podcasts and leave us a five-star rating or review. You'll not only put an unnaturally wide smile on our faces, but help new listeners discover our terrifying tales, too. Why not share your love of the show out in the world with some Tales to Terrify merch? TalesToTerrify.com slash merch will take you to our Tee Public store where we've got a great collection of creepy custom and curated designs, so you can show those around you just how twisted you truly are. Tales to Terrify is produced by Seth Williams, Meredith Morgenstern, Andrew Gibson, Crystal Hammond, Spencer Despardi, and myself, Drew Sebastini, with original theme by Nebulous Entertainment. Tales to Terrify is distributed Under a Creative Commons Attribution, Non-Commercial, No Derivatives License. Join us again next week as we wander the wasteland in search of more Tales to Terrify.